Good morning. We haven't got afternoon just yet, have we? I was telling the Sunday school class today that I, I don't speak usually the same uh, two, two services on a given Sunday, so it was, um, it was a, little bit, a little bit different for me to, to preach. Um, Patty said, just pretend like you're preaching to another, just to another church, but, but there's always a temptation to do other things like, uh, well, do you say the same thing over again, or maybe you just uh, freak the pastor out and preach a completely different message, and uh, what, do you, what do you do? Well, uh, very thankful to see a lot of new faces uh, this, uh, this afternoon. Um, while we're uh, doing some introductions, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians and uh, the first chapter and just kind of put it on hold there for a minute. As Pastor mentioned, we are missionaries with the Gospel Mission of South America. Your church supports one of our uh, missionary couples, uh, Dan and Liz uh, Thompson, and uh, they are serving in Lincoln Ray, uh, Chile, and they work with our mission. Uh, in the video, there's a guy at the very end of the video that says a few words and and he's a, he's a native son. He's from uh, Bremerton, grew up in the Bremerton area. So he's always a little jealous when, when wherever we're up in this corner of the country. Um, so we uh, like to have that little connection with you. I wasn't always a missionary, though. I, I pastored for 16 years, eight and a half years in Hawaii, and uh, seven and a half years in uh, northeast Wisconsin. So it was, uh, it was a, a, quite a transition to go from uh, being in uh, the pastoral role to being a missionary uh, helping to start a Bible college. If you'd like to know how the Lord worked to bring that transition about, you'll have to come back tonight. I'm not going to tell you anything this morning. You have to wait till then. So we'll just keep you in suspense until then. Also, um, there are some things about the ministry that the Lord has been doing in the last, well, I think about the last year and a half or so that are very strong indications of God's pleasure in this ministry. If you remember when Nehemiah uh, went to Jerusalem uh, to help the Jews to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls. Uh, he told uh, the Jews that were there, he says, you can see that the walls are torn down, the, the gates are burned with fire, and the people are in great distress. Well, they all knew that because they lived there. Nehemiah was just coming in uh, from Persia. So they knew that the situation was bad. And Nehemiah says that we need to rebuild the, these walls. They knew that the walls needed to be rebuilt, uh, but up to this time, uh, nobody had made a move to do that. But when Nehemiah described to them how God's hand was upon him and upon the, the work to provide the resources to, to give his blessing, when, the Lord, when he described the Lord's blessing upon that ministry, that's when the people said, let us rise up and build. And he did a phenomenal work, but it was not until they, they understood that God's hand was on it. Well, there are some things that the Lord has done uh, in our ministry and uh, on the field that are directly, and in, to, to me, a direct indication that God's hand is upon the work. And so we're very thankful for it. If you want to know what those things are, you have to come back tonight. So I'm not going to tell you anything more about it uh, this morning. So just to kind of bait you a little bit. So if you, get a, if you get a note from home or you get sick or you're in the hospital or something like that, you have an excuse not to come back tonight. But other than that, I think everybody should be here tonight. Amen? All right, that was good. I wasn't too bad. I was expecting less. You got more? Great. So it will be good to see you guys again tonight. All right, take your Bibles, please, if you're not already there, and look to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I like to ask a question oftentimes when it comes to ministry and ask the, to me, a very important question, why do we do ministry? Why do we um, uh, take, uh, make the attempt to share the gospel with people? Why do we put together our money, our shekels uh, that are very important to us for our, for our livelihood and well-being? Why do we take these shekels and give them up sometimes sacrificially to do this 
work of the ministry. Why do we build buildings? Why do we have programs? Why do we put together literature? Why do we do the things that we do, use the resources that we have, and, um, and take real risks uh, when it comes to ministry? Why do we do that? And, uh, and, and the, the answer, of course, is it's a biblical answer, but I think it's important for us to answer it and answer it correctly. I, I think when we start uh, gauging our motivations for doing ministry, we need to make sure that we're doing ministry for the right reasons. Amen? Uh, we need to really understand that. So when, when we look at, at doing ministry, I think the, most, the thing that comes immediately to mind, why do we do ministry? We do ministry because that's what was given to us to do by Jesus Christ. In the Great Commission, when, when Christ was, was speaking to his disciples and preparing to make his departure uh, via the cross, the uh, burial, and the resurrection, he told his disciples, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We call that the Great Commission. Jesus Christ gave to his church and gave to us the Great Commission. Before he ascended up into heaven, when the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It was a real and an accurate expectation. But Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that are in God's hands. Instead, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the othermost parts of the world, all the way out to Washington State. So for 2,000 years, that's what the church has been mandated to do. We've been mandated to take the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and go global with it, to take it to people, groups, and, and, and cultures all around the world so they might know how to be saved. And so when we ask, why do we do ministry? The very first thing, first way we answer that is because, because we're told to do so. We, we've been given the call. We've been given the, the command to go and, and do what he has asked us to do. And because we want to obey him, we will do these things. It's almost like out of a sense of duty. We do them because we should do it. Uh, I served in the, in the military. And while I served in the military, I did my duty. I did my duty because that was what I was supposed to do. So I understand the idea of a sense of duty, even when it comes to things like ministry. We have a duty to serve the Lord, amen? But I think beyond that, we, we don't just do our duty just for the sake of doing our duty, just for the sake of, of obeying the Great Commission. We do it because of, of another factor. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, if you blank, keep my commandments. What, did he, what was in the blank? If you love me. If you love me, keep my commandments. So we not only obey the Lord in the Great Commission, but we obey him because we love him. If we love the Lord Jesus, anything that he has given us to do, that's what we should want to do. That's a good motivation to think about what we want to do. Well, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to serve the Lord? Why do you want to go into the missions? Why do you want to, why do you want to support missions? Why do you want to do these ministries? Well, because Christ asked me to. It says it right here in the Bible. And furthermore, I love him. And because I love him, I want to do what he asked me to do. And, um, and we could almost just end the story right there. But I think, I think there's a little bit more to it. A lot of times we want to share the gospel with people because we know the impact it's going to have on a person's life. Now, I don't know how many of you are saved a little bit later in, in life. I was saved when I was 23, so I was a little older. 
had a lot of messiness uh, the prior to the, the first 23 years. When I got saved, God fixed my life. Now, how many of you had that happen to you? I mean, you can recall the day that you came to know the Lord and your life, your broken, shallow, empty, going nowhere life finally has something going on. Do you remember that? Remember how great that was when the lights came on? You finally understood? You know, my wife was saved when she was young. She was four years old when she understood the gospel. And at four years old, she didn't have to give up things like drinking and smoking and cussing and things like that. When I was 23, I did have to give those things up. So sometimes we don't have the same things that, we, that, we, that change about us, but we know that something has happened in our lives. God does change us through the gospel. And so sometimes we, we minister to the gospel to people because we know it's a broken world. Sin has broken and, and smashed our world, hasn't it? People all around us, their lives are all messed up. Whether they acknowledge it or not, we know because we can see the devastating effects of sin in our world. I mean, we got these, uh, these uh, Marines here. I've got a son who's in the military. I've got a son who's in the Air Force. These guys are fighting and, and have to be available to fight. Why? Because we live in a sin-cursed world. We have people that work in the medical profession. We have police officers. We have security officers. We have counselors. We have, we have people in our society to fix the broken things because our world is broken. And it's broken because of sin. And the only thing that can fix that is the gospel. And so sometimes we want to do ministry out of a sense of duty because Christ tells us to, but because we love him and we want to obey him, but we know that there are great benefits that come along with being saved. And there are husbands out there that wives are praying, God, save my husband so that we can have fellowship, so that his life will be better. Some of us parents, those of us who are born again, have children that are not walking with the Lord, that don't know the Lord. And we're begging God, please save my son, save my daughter, because I know that if they only receive Christ as their Savior, their lives would be better. And so sometimes that, that is our motivation. We want to proclaim the gospel because it will fix somebody's life, make them a better husband, make them a better wife, better child, better parent, whatever. That's a good reason too, isn't it? To obey the Lord, it's a good reason. Because you love him, that's a good reason. Because there are definite benefits that come along with being saved, those are good reasons. But it doesn't stop there. There are other reasons, and I think more important reasons to share Christ with people, reasons to share, uh, uh, to, to pool our resources, to do the work of the ministry. In the book of Ephesians chapter one, there's a passage here, verses three through 14, that I want to go through a couple of times, actually three times. I want to go through it, not all the way through verse by verse, word for word, but I want to point out some things to you that, that take us to the, the reason why we, why we do the ministry. And I want you to look with me, if you will, first of all, well, we talk about the benefits of being a, of being a believer, being a born-again believer. Uh, these, these, are, these are wonderful benefits. Look at verse 3, chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I, I don't understand all the implications of these kinds of blessings because they're, I can't see them because they're, they're rooted and, and grounded in in spiritual things and in heavenly places. But I know that I have been granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These are not primarily material blessings. 
Christ never guaranteed us a new home, a new car, big bank account, health for the rest of your life. He never guaranteed any of that through the gospel. He never said, if you get saved, man, your life is gonna be peachy keen from, from then on out. No more troubles, no bumps in the road, no illnesses, nothing. It's gonna be great. He never said that. Our blessings are spiritual in nature, not necessarily material. Now, I mean, I have food to eat and I have uh, a uh, house to live in, I, I have these blessings and I, I attribute that to the Lord, but it's the spiritual blessings that will never be taken away, they'll never rust out, they'll never be gone, they'll be there forever and they're mine and they're, they belong to anybody that receives Christ as their savior. That's a great blessing, don't you think? He goes on to say, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. One of the blessings that believers have when they receive Christ as their Savior is that before God, they are holy and without blame. When you study the impact of sin in the world, you'll, you'll come to realize that the sin has brought into our world fear and shame and guilt. We, we are afraid of God. We're afraid of his scrutiny of our lives. Outside of Christ, we, we stand before him in, in a bad situation. And, and people... Who, who do not know the Lord as their savior, but they know intuitively that there is a God, do everything they can to bury that knowledge because they're afraid of God's scrutiny. So all the stupid things that people do out there in the world trying to hide from God, they do it because they're afraid of him. They do it because they're ashamed of their sins. They do it because they are guilty. People do all kinds of crazy things simply to try to cover up the guilt of their wickedness. I mean, you think about it. Think about all the things that people do out there, all the crazy broken things that people get involved with. It's a result of the fear and the shame and the guilt. Well, through the gospel, those things are dealt with. We have nothing else to fear because Christ has, has taken away those fears. He has taken away the guilt. He has, he has pardoned us and there is no shame. He says, we stand before him holy and without blame. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. Doesn't mean that we, we do not have to worry about ever sinning again because we're, we're, we're human. We still have a sin nature to deal with. But what it means is, is that those imperfections, those sins, those things that we still struggle with have been dealt with. And we stand before him holy and blameless. Isn't that great? I think it is. He goes on to say, having predestined us to adoption as sons, no longer are we enemies of God, no longer are we at enmity with, with God, but we are his children. Our relationship with him is like a, a father to his children. We are his children, no longer orphaned by sin. We are his, his offspring. We are, we are related. He's brought us into his family. So we've been adopted as sons. Down to verse seven, then he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I don't know about you, but I know when I, when I became a believer, I, I had accumulated 23 years worth of naughtiness. 23 years of, of the manifestation of my sin nature. And there was a long list of things that I had done wrong. When I came to understand the the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ through the atonement, what he did for me, to know that I have redemption, I have forgiveness of sins, I can't tell you the, the weight that was lifted off of 
my heart, forgiven. I mean, is there, is there any sweeter word to a guilty soul than forgiven? I forgive you. Well, that's what we have in him. We have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. Sin has been totally dealt with. Every time we, we um, practice communion, every time we observe the, the Lord's table, we are being reminded that he has redeemed us and our sins have been washed away. That's a benefit, don't you think? When you want to share Christ with somebody, aren't you looking forward to being able to share that with somebody so that they can know what it is to be forgiven of their sins? It's beautiful. It's wonderful. So we have been forgiven. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse, um, well, let me just continue to read down here. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, having made known to us the mystery of his will. And he goes on to talk about that. Verse 11, he says, we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to counsel of his will. Verse 11, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So, so uh, the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, Father, the work of the Father in, in putting together the plan of redemption, the work of Christ in carrying it out, and the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing all that, we as believers inherit this package of benefits. And so we look forward to sharing those things with people. But if we left the gospel right there, if we left redemption right at that spot, then the gospel becomes all about me, doesn't it? What do I get out of this? And when we share the gospel with people, if that's where we leave it, then we're sharing them with them something that's, that's all about them. Let me tell you what Christ has done for you. This is what you get if you receive Christ as your savior. Kind of just sounds like a package deal, like a new job or something like that. Well, what do I get if I, if I trust Christ as my savior? Well, you get all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places, redemption, forgiveness, all this good stuff. And then the gospel becomes more all about me and what do I get out of it. And, and if we only go that far with the gospel, then we do the gospel a disservice and it becomes, it becomes a, a, um, a man-centered gospel and not a God-centered gospel. Now, going back through this text, there are, and I on purpose left these things out, there are some very little words uh, in the text that, that help us to take Take our, our perspective of the gospel. Here are all the things that I receive in Christ. Hallelujah. I'm so glad. Praise the Lord. And, and they're worthwhile, aren't they? They're great things. But, but these little words take these great things that we receive from the Lord, and they take our attention off of those things, and they, they start pointing them to the one through whom we get them. We just don't happen into these blessings and these benefits. They come to us in a very special way. Look what he says there in Back up to verse 3 again. He said, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Our blessings come to us, he said. These spiritual blessings come to us in Christ. And that being holy and blameless without, uh, without blame before him, that comes to us as he chose us in him. So it's in Christ that we are holy and without blame. It's in Christ that we receive all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Those of us who have been adopted, we are children. We are adopted as children, as sons and daughters of God 
by Jesus Christ to himself. So these little prepositions, these little tiny words, take our attention and our focus off of not just what we have in, in Christ, I mean, have as, as believers, but how we get them. And our focus is now on Jesus, on, on the one who provided these things. So our attention shifts from being, a, from being a, an anthropocentric gospel to a theocentric gospel. We're now focused on the Lord. That's an important transition because that takes us to the third thing. Well, just to continue in here, verse 11 says, in him also we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. All these blessings that we have come to us through Christ. Now let's go back through, back up to verse uh, three, well, back up to three again, but I'm not gonna read it. In verse six, he says, well, let me read part of verse five. It says, according to the good pleasure of his will, and look what he says here, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted and beloved. So we have all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We have adoption as sons. We have all these wonderful things to the praise of the glory of his grace. So the benefits that we have in Christ, the work that Christ has done is all being done in order to do what? To bring him glory. It is to bring glory uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse uh, 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So now you see the attention has gone full circle. We were focused on all the benefits that we have, but now having understood that, that Christ performed what he did and all these blessings we have are, are through him, now the focus goes to God, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 14 says at the end, to the um, until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. So why do we do ministry? We do ministry because we are told to do so in the Great Commission. We do obey the Lord because we love him. We want to do what he says because we love him. And there are great and fantastic benefits that come to those whose lives are changed to the gospel. But those changes come as a result of the work that Christ did. They come because of him, not because of us. They come because of him, and it's done so that God gets the glory for it. That's the reason why we preach the gospel to people is because God gets the glory. It's the reason why we put offerings in the offering plate. It's the reason why we walk out the door and witness to our neighbor. It's the reason why we stay in touch with missionaries to encourage them in their work is because God will get glory through the fruit of, of, the, of the work of redemption and, and, and the witness of redemption. God gets the glory for it. Now, that kind of begs uh, the question or begs a, a definition. What does it mean to glorify God? If, if what we do is done for God's glory, what does that mean? Well, I think in, in this passage and, and everywhere else in, script, in Scripture, when it says, let us give glory to God, let us glorify God, what that means is that we draw favorable attention to the person and the work of God. We draw favorable attention to him. We point favorably to him. So in the gospel, in the gospel message, Christ's attributes, God's attributes are being manifest. God's sovereignty, God's power, God's wisdom uh, in the cross, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's love, God's holiness, God's righteousness, all these, these attributes are brought to bear on the cross. And so when we share Christ, with people, we're telling them 
Here's what this great God, this is what this great God is like. He's loving, he's merciful, he's righteous, he is holy. And so to the praise of the glory of his grace, that's what is brought out. We praise him for the glory of his grace when we describe what grace has done through the gospel. And God gets the praise for it. And so when we share Christ, if, if we are not taking people's attention and focusing it on, 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 on him, not taking them back to the creator, not taking them back to the redeemer, then, then we are doing the gospel a disservice. But when we do this, when we share Christ properly, biblically, not only are, you, are we just blowing people away with the wonderful nature of salvation, but we are reintroducing them to a marvelous Savior, a wonderful God, an awesome God. Would you agree with that? Well, it doesn't end there. Look, if you will, to the book of Psalms. I'd like for you to look at this 19th Psalm very quickly. Well, that's uh, pastorally speaking very quickly. You understand that, right? <laughs> the 19th Psalm, David writes... He says, the heavens, we're talking about the glory of God now. We're glorifying God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It's a universal message. It's a silent message, but it is a universal message. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and, and their words to the end of the world. So when... What David is saying, he said, I look up at the heavens, and the heavens, what I see up there, gives me pause to reflect favorably upon the work and the person of God. He said, I see these stars, I see these, the sun and, and the moon and the stars, and I see these sunrises, I see these sunsets, and he says, they, they speak universally from one end of the heaven to the other to all people everywhere. They speak universally, even if silently, that there is a great and grand creator. Now, you and I have access to um, an understanding of the, of the heavens that David did not have. Uh, David did not have a telescope to see the craters on the moon, but he could see, you know, little dots up there. He didn't have... Um, um, a telescope to show him the rings around Saturn. He couldn't, maybe couldn't see this, the, the moons of Jupiter. Probably couldn't see beyond the solar system except for the stars that were and out there. But, but did he know that they were great suns? You know, there are suns uh, out there in, in, the, in the galaxy that you could take, well, if you take a, if you take a million Earths, you could put a million Earths into our sun. Do you know that? Roughly speaking, I don't know the physics on that, but there, you could put a million Earths inside our sun. There are some suns out there, some stars, that you could take a million of our suns and put them inside. And there's one or two of those stars out there that you could take a million of those and stick them inside. There are suns out there that are large enough to take up our whole solar system. Huge things, big things, but they're just little tiny dots within these little galaxies. That's, that's, I mean, that's pretty big. Think about galaxies are pretty good size. Our Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years across. Now, you just try to ponder that for a little while. But there is an object in the universe that uh, is, is some kind of um, uh, a nebula cluster. Uh, they consider it one, one celestial body. But whatever it is, it is 4. Point, I want to say 4.7 billion 
light years across. One celestial object out there, a little dot in the sky that you see at night, but that thing is so far away, but it, it, it is four point something billion light years across. That's like 40,000 of, of our galaxies stretched end to end. You think about the size and the, and the scope of the creation, and you think, wow, that is fantastic. I mean, when I was a kid, we always talked about the infinite, the, 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 the heavens go on to infinity. You know, as a little kid, I used to wonder, how does that work? How do you go on to infinity? It's got to come to an end someplace. But when a little 10-year-old kid says, it's got to come to an end someplace, what's that 10-year-old kid going to think after that? Well, what's on the other side of the wall? You know, if it comes to an end, what's on the other side of that? So you, 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 just, you can just, you have, as Solomon writes, we have eternity in our hearts. We can comprehend eternity, and yet we cannot really deal with the scope of it. So when we say that the heavens declare the glory of God, we, there are some fantastic things out there to consider. Now, David couldn't consider these like that, but he still says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Well, there was something that David knew that we also know. We, we share this information. That's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when you think of distances that are measured in light years and you think of sizes that are so far beyond our comprehension and you think about a universe that goes on and on and on and that there is a God who exists outside of that, you have to step back and think to yourself, what kind of a being is this? What kind of a God is it that we serve? What kind of a, a being can create all this out of nothing? who just wills it into existence. You're going to go home and eat lunch a little later, I'm assuming. When you go home, instead of going um, to the restaurant or instead of pulling something out of the crock pot, you just go home today, sit down at the table, put your plate on the table, say, let there be beef. You try it. You'll starve, I guarantee you. You can't even, you can't even will into existence a pea or a bean. You can't will into existence one atom of matter. You know, and we're pretty potent people. But we can't create something out of nothing. God creates an entire universe out of nothing simply by willing it into existence. So when David says that the heavens declare the glory of God, he's saying something, isn't he? What a wonderful, awesome, wise, powerful, creative. I mean, his creativity is infinite. What kind of a God is that that we worship? So when you think about the heavens, you think to yourself, this is something, what greater thing can glorify God than this great and vast and beautiful and awesome creation? So when it comes to glorifying God, is there anything that does a better job than that? One thing. Look, if you will, to the eighth psalm. David, again, is the author, and he's going to make reference again to the, to the universe. Only this time, he takes us where we want to go. In the 8th Psalm, verse 3, David writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Remember, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So when I consider the heavens, the moon, the moon and the stars, etc., he asks this question, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? 
I mean, when you were a kid, did you ever think to yourself, you know, wow, the universe is so big and I'm just so small. You ever wondered about that? You know, we are such a small speck, seemingly so insignificant. And David says that when I look at all these things that God has made, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, that you visit him, that you even pay attention to us? Because he's, he's, he's mindful of what God has done. He says in verse five, he says, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You, you have done something with mankind. And he's saying, you've done something with mankind. And I, I look at all the other things that you've made. Why have you done this for us? What is it that he's done? When he crowned man with glory and honor, what was that glory and honor that he crowned him with? Think Genesis 1.27. God said, let us make man how? In our image. In our likeness. God made human beings in his image. So when you think about the heavens declare the glory of God, the creation declares the glory of God, when all these things in the creation bring glory to God, none of those things bears the stamp image bearer. And what better reflection, what better positive reflection of the person and the works of God than those who actually bear his image, not those who simply reflect his image, not simply those who, who reflect his, his power and his workmanship, but those who actually bear his image. There is nothing like a human being, nothing in a whole universe that has a capacity for bringing favorable attention to the creator like a created being that is his image bearer. Nothing compares to that. So with that, with the magnitude of, of the qualities of, of our creation, that just underscores the tragedy of the fall. Because that image has not been erased, but it has been effaced, it has been marred, it has been distorted. And so that creates a problem. We are image bearers. We hold the greatest capacity for glorifying God, and yet we can't because we have fallen. And that brings me back to answer the question, why do we do the work of the ministry? Why do we take the risk? Why do we gather the resources? Why do we make the sacrifices in order to do ministry? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll just read it to you. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so Paul is saying that in Christ, go back to Ephesians chapter 1 with your thinking, in Christ, we are new creatures. That old man who, who has a marred and and distorted uh, uh, ability to, to image God. Now he is a new creature. Those old things are passing away. There are new things that are coming into being. We are being created uh, from glory to glory into the image of Christ, who is the, the image bearer par excellence. We're being made in the image of Christ, a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And, listen, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And look at this. And has committed to us, has committed to you, has committed to all of his people, has committed to us 
the, the word of reconciliation. So the greatest way to bring glory to God is through an image bearer. But the greatest way for an image bearer to glorify God is through redemption. And brothers and sisters, we are the only ones in the entire universe who have been given the message and the ability to communicate that message to human beings in order to restore them to fellowship with God. The greatest travesty is that we don't bring glory to God. The greatest opportunity is that we have the message that will accomplish that. And God has given that message to us. And that is our privilege. That's why we do ministry. It's so that God gets glory because a sinner has been restored to fellowship with him. That's our privilege. And that's what we get to do every day. So we cannot let our generation, let the ball drop on our generation by not reaching the world with this gospel. You can see it's important. Can you not? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you for giving us the opportunity to serve you. We thank you, Lord, for the message of salvation. We thank you for the blessings it brings to us. And Lord, I wanna pray, if there's anybody here in this room this morning that doesn't know you as their savior, maybe they've come into the building today for whatever reason, uh, curiosity, um, compulsion, uh, whatever it was that brought them here, they, they come here knowing that, that they don't know uh, you as their savior. Their heart is empty, they're, they're in, they're, they're, their lives have come to a dead end, uh, whatever the case may be, would you please open up their eyes and help them to understand that Jesus died to save them from their sins and to bring them back to you? Help them to see that. And Lord, help us, uh, Lord, to cast off complacency, to cast off indifference, cast off fears and, and troubles about sharing the gospel. And Lord, give us this generation. Give us this generation to reach them for you. And I pray that you'll help us to be uh, um, spirit-filled and bold to go out there and present Christ with our next-door neighbor, with our workmate, with our family, and with citizens around the world. Well, thank you for this in Christ's name.